0: Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Anne Gordon here with my friend and chavruta, Dana Osband. Our daf of the day, Basachadei Ravin daf nun, page 50. Now, we're going to try something a little bit different, this daf, because the Gemara does something a little bit different, this daf. Um, basically, we have a statement about Rav. Dana, you're going to talk about this, um, which is coming off of the Gemara's first interpretation of the mission that was at the bottom of the last uh, daf that we did not actually read Together with you, um, and that discussion kind of pops up over the course of this daf, and it's interwoven with some other really substantive discussions. Some of which we're going to pull out as um, kind of to, to disentangle these two topics, even though they're not, or or at least one of the topics and the rub's main topic, they're not um, they're not so separate in the Gemara because the Gemara is using one to kind of address the other. But for our purposes. Um, to read the entirety of it inside is too much, and I think that we can kind of understand what's going on a little bit better if we look at them separate and then ourselves put them together. So, you' Dan, I'm going to hand off to you for Rov, and then, and then I'll pick it up again with some of the issues that are, a lot, you know, coming out of this whole discussion.
1: Okay, so we're going to try this. You'll have to bear with me because I'm going to have to like scroll through a little bit, some of the, you know, skip around a little bit. So if you remember the mission on the previous staff had this interesting case where somebody's walking uh, near uh, sundown at the beginning of Shabbat and basically wants to establish his residence somewhere so he could walk essentially what will end up being a total of 4,000 ammo, right? So you do it under a tree, you get 2,000, and then maybe another 2,000 towards their home. Um, And, you know, the the first case, right, is that he basically says, you know, I'm going to establish it. Um, under this tree, right? He just says, you know, Shiv Tati Tartav. And the Gemara says, Lo Amar right? Like he just, it just says it's like he didn't say anything. And so the question is, why is it that he didn't say anything? Why is it not enough to say, you know, my residence is underneath the tree? And so Rev says, Amar Rav, and this is again on the previous stop, Lo Amar Koli Kart, Tartav, Shalilan, Lo matzi Azio. So Rev says, it's it's basically that he said anything right? He didn't say anything at all because it's, it was so vague what he said. And even he can't even go to the place beneath the tree. In other words, because he didn't really specify well a specific location, um, he's not really allowed to even establish his residence underneath that tree. And the fact that he tried to actually establish his residence somewhere other than where he actually was at that time means that he can't actually establish his residence where he is at that moment. So in the end, what happens to him? He can only walk Arba Amos. So the Gemara on the top of Ardaf, on top, top of, of Nun, um, you know, says, quotes Rabbah, who says, I'm a Rabba. my time uh, to Rav. What's the reason for Rav? Mishum misame atre. Right. So he says, Why does what what is Raba's statement, right? Where it says that um that this, you know, wanting to declare his residence underneath the tree, it said he didn't do anything. And so Rav explains because the place he designated isn't actually defined well, right? He needed to be more specific with his language, or I wouldn't even say the language, with like identifying what area um, he actually was going to be, uh, was actually going to be the residence. Um, And then we skip down now to the top of Amud Bet. Um, and we have a baye who's gonna explain this a little bit more, Amar baye, Lo Loshanu, right? He's talking about Rub. We didn't we they only taught this. He's talking about rub statement here. Elabi Ilancha tahtav stay misre amah, Ava Bilancha shtaim stay ama, haremiksat veto nikar, right? So Rab is saying that this demon was taught with a tree that was it's 12 amot. In other words, it's a very large tree with a very large area, right? But if the tree is less than twelve amot right, then it's very clear where his residence would be. So in other words, there's more discussion that goes on after this. I'm not going to go through all this, but what Abaye is basically explaining is, is a fundamental question I think we could have on this Mishnah, right? What do you mean that it's not specific enough when you say my residence is going to be underneath a tree, right? It's the area underneath a tree. And so the point is, is that it has to be a fairly large tree. On the block where I live, um, and it's kind of funny how this happened. Once uh, we started spending more time at home, my daughter and I, who's four, we would walk very often Shabbat morning, and we noticed on one of our neighbor's properties, I mean, it's really like across the street and, you know, eight houses down, there's this ginormous, ginormous tree that we had like never noticed before that's beautiful. And I, I thought of this tree when I read this Gemara. It's just, I almost wish I could take a picture, but it's, you know, I, I don't know if I'll get around to it to post with the episode. But it's a huge tree with a huge area underneath. And they even landscaped it that they put um plants all around the base of this tree, right? So the base of the tree is like, it's definitely more than four on It's just ginormous. So the idea is that if you have an area underneath the tree that's so big, right, that's what's going to be not clear exactly, like that's making it not clear because remember- We say a person is really Dalet Amot. So it's really, but if the tree is less, according to a at least, and again, that's going to be a machlokas with some of the Amarayim. What space does the tree have to be where we sort of consider it to be small enough that it's clear what the space is that you're designating? But his point is, if it's less than 12 Amot, it's very clear what the residence is. This isn't such a big tree. And I think this also makes sense because you know, I think our encounter with trees tend to be things that were landscaped or put on lawns. Um, we're talking about trees where people travel. These trees can be huge, right? Ones that we see in the forest or outside in more nature type of areas. They're, they're huge trees that have been growing for a very long time. And the area underneath them can actually be rather large. So that's a further clarification of what this case is. And then we get to a very interesting statement all the way at the bottom of the top. Um, so just bear me with a, with a second, a second here. So the Gemara had quoted, um, another Brisa, um, uh, which was talking about, um, if somebody, uh, accidentally made an eruv in two directions, right? Uh, right. So he made an eruv in two directions. Um, and then basically what the Brisa tells us is, or, you know, he told his servants to make, an era for him, and the servants made it in two directions. Um, you know, so right because we know really an era to human really can only be um, really can only be uh, in uh, in one uh, in one direction. So what do they say? So the answer is basically like you, the person puts himself in the middle, right, and he can't really he can't really move around from there, right. So in other words, if you didn't if you weren't clear, okay. Um, if you sort of weren't clear of which direction it was going to be, this becomes problematic. Um, um, and so you have to take that into consideration that you actually made an Arab in both directions. And so that impacts actually in which direction and how much you can actually move. I know I'm not going into the Brisa particularly well, but here here's the important part here. Lema to you've said So now the Gemara says maybe this should actually be like a tiyufta, right? Which we always say is like a conclusive conclusive refutation of the opinion of Rav. And then what is the Gemara answer here? Rav tanahu upalik, right? That actually, yes, this brysa is very different than Rav's ruling. Again, what it's getting back to is, is that Rav is telling us that you need to be very specific of how you actually make your a And this brysa is an example where somebody wasn't specific enough, right? It ended up being in multiple directions, Right. So we would think, according to Rav, in that case, it wouldn't be an Arav, right? So they're going to say, well, maybe this is a t- this is a you know, this goes against Rav's opinion, this Brisa. But what do they answer? Yeah, it does. But what? But Rav is a Tana. Rav has the status of being a Tana, right? A very different than other Amuraim, And therefore, he's allowed to disagree with a brysa. Now, that is a fascinating statement within itself in a fascinating way. To actually, um, uh, you know, sort of solve this machloka. So, again, we'll just do a quick who's who again. I think we have talked about Rub before and we'll talk about him more, right? But Rub is really this generation that sort of bridges the Tanaim and Amoraim. He is considered to be of a first generation Amorak. He lives from like 175 to 247, sometime around there, 245 um, CE. Um, His name actually is Abba Aricha because he was actually very, very tall. Um, And he is who establishes the Babylonian yeshiva of Surah. Um, But again, the idea is that uh, when he and his teacher is Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, so I think that's also what's key here. So he's really sort of this um, bridging Amora. He's also a bridging teacher in terms of Israel and Babel, right? Like he learns in Israel with Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, but eventually establishes one of the more, you know, one of the important Talmudic academies of, uh, of Babel. And basically what the Gemara answers is, is yeah, it totally goes against Rev's opinion. But we're okay with that because Rev is kind of, Rev is a Tana, And Rev is allowed to have a different opinion than Tanayim. Um, so I think this gives us a fascinating insight into how the Gemara viewed, you know, one of these particular very early um, Murayim. Um, and that they weren't necessarily had to be beholden to exactly how all of the Tana'idic uh, Halachot came out, and that Rav actually was allowed to, in terms of a halachic system, have a different opinion than a Tana.
0: I think it also speaks to, you know, we had this discussion of, you have these two people who disagree, and we regularly and like one person, and now we've got the other person. so. So some of these general principles that may not always be upheld, I, I don't know that Rav always wins. Let's say because he's attained this status of Atana, um, I don't know that we always say that the Rav's opinion um, holds sway. Right here, we certainly were going to see people disagree with him, um, but the idea that he doesn't have to kind of. Hold allegiance or pay allegiance to the brighta because he's achieved a big enough stature to argue with it. Um, I think is is impressive, right? Meaning it's, it says something about, of course, about Rav, but it also says something about the fact that the Gemara um, or the system of Chazal, I guess, in terms of recognizing authority, is not quite as rigid. Well, but I as one might to think, exactly right? It recognizes very well.
1: And I thank you for that clarification. It's not about who the Halakha is according to, right? It's not about whether we Poskin like rub or how often we poskin like rub. It's really just we allow that rub is allowed to have a different opinion and a different viewpoint. And I think that shows an inherent flexibility within the halakhic system. I would
0: say also, and this is just a peanut gallery kind of comment from me, I think in the modern age where we're so accustomed to everybody being entitled to having their own opinion, the idea that there's a hierarchy of where you're allowed to, express your opinion, is kind of challenging, right? I think that people very often will say, I I view this as I do, and that's good enough. But that is not the world of Chazal. So this uh, recognition that Rav achieved, whatever it is that he achieved, to be able to, you know, go a generation earlier in his machoket, um is, as I say, quite different from our modern era where everybody gets to yes, fight with everybody 100%, 100%.
1: else. a um,
0: 100%. Okay, so now I'm going to do the what I find to be a little bit of a challenge, which is to see some of these, some of the Gemara that kind of intersperses between all these these three statements that Yerdena, that you read about Rav and the tree, and talk about what was really or Chazal are trying to figure out what is Rav's real concern here, right? Why does he say that it's as if they've said nothing? So Yerda, that you explain this to some degree, but the Gemara itself. You know explores other avenues and the first position is and it's and it's an interesting one in its own right which is why i guess we're treating it separately right so what does this mean there's two categories of the way things can happen one is called ze we'll call this sequential Right? Events can happen sequentially, decisions can be made sequentially. Uh, one can take ownership of one thing and then the next thing, right? And that would be sequential. And the other category is called bivat achat. Right? Bivat achat means like at one time or simultaneously. And so that's where you have two things that take place in exactly the same in exactly the same moment that they come together in their in their taking effect. So this position then says as follows that Anything that cannot be accomplished sequentially, according to Rav, cannot take place simultaneously either. Meaning if it's something that would not work were you to do it one after another after another, then the fact that you've done it, those steps at one time is not going to be effective. Now, why is this relevant to the tree? Well, this is a good question, but basically the idea is that if you're Trying to establish residence in one dalit amot, Your, Dana, you Daniel. alluded to this, right? On one side of the tree, and then you want to establish residence on the other side of the tree with the other dalit amot. You can't do that sequentially. So you that so therefore, there's no way to do it simultaneously, right? Meaning, um, yes, that's that's the position. Okay. Now the Gemara goes through a whole bunch of different kinds of cases where you might say well, is this simultaneous and yet it's sequential? Is that, you know, or is this se- sequential and then is that then simultaneous? So for example, and I'm just going to touch on these different cases um, and moving away from this question of establishing residence with your Talat right? What about maaser, um, right? When you're tithing. So you let's say you take the tithe, you take a tithe, a tithe? Um, so what happens? You are going to increase your tithing. I'm sorry, this is a funny word for me today. I don't know why. Um, and so that you, instead of giving only one-tenth of your maser, you give two-tenths, right? And now what happens is that the rest of the, your produce is, you know, made you know, fine, right? You've taken your, you've taken your tenth. The fact that you've taken two tenths doesn't change the rest of it. It's also fine, but the problem is that the tithing process is a little bit messed up now because that additional tenth isn't considered maaser. It's not considered, it's not considered produce that has had maaser taken from it, and it's also not considered maaser because, because it's this weird generous offer, I guess. But it's still not clear whether. Under, which, under what circumstances would that be considered maser at all? So the question then is, well, then maybe that should be, you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that can be done simultaneously. You can say, aha, this is where you have maser um, it, Because it is together with the maser, it can be considered tithing. Or do you say, no, no, it's part of the other food. And then the idea, here's the, the Gemara says here, kol afilu b'vat it says, this is the position, right? It didn't happen sequentially. It can't happen sequentially, they, right? Once you've tithed your food, you can't tithe it again. So the fact that you can't do it sequentially means that you also couldn't have done it two at a time, two tenths at one time and count it as tithing. Um, so that's one example. And then of course, the course as well, but the but Maser is different, right? Each case is gonna get its own due um, full examination. And we're not, I'm not taking the time to do that now. I, that's not that's not my agenda. My agenda here is to see how there is a discussion of exactly this question of versus simultaneous. So for the maser, I think that's clear. I hope that's clear. And then there's another question: What about if you're talking about tithing, right? Designating as a tenth for animals, right? Maser behima the You cannot. You obviously cannot divide an animal into a portion, right? Once you've got an animal, you have to say that. Like that um every tenth and the tenth animal of your f- you know, or the first ten animals or however it's gonna be, the it's a very specific animal, right? So Rava says, Ya tush Basiri. So let's say you're you're you've got a paddock of your sheep, right? And you're gonna say the tenth animal that comes out, that's the one that's gonna be um the, the tenth that's gonna be um the Maser Behema. So Maser behema, the tithing of the animals. So now two animals come out at once. Two sheep come out. They're pushing each other. They come out exactly the same. Right? Now what are you going to do? Now you've got the 10th and the 11th, fundamentally, mixed up together. Or maybe you've got the 9th and the 10th mixed up together. So the commandment says... But when you're tithing animals, you have a little bit of a dis- different situation, because when you're designating that animal, what you, you're basically saying one after another can be, in the case of an error, you can designate the eleventh animal to be the te- to be maser behema in the event that there would be a blemish in the tenth animal. So that which is something that we don't really do with the food, but uh, with the produce, I guess they both could be food, right? But um, it's something that we don't do with the produce, but we do it with the animal. So then what you've done is fundamentally designated, in fact, two animals, right? Number 10 and number 11, to be hectish, to be given to the beta Beit HaMikdash. Okay. And then the question is, what if you did 9 and 10? What if you did 9 and 10 and 11? Right? Then all three of those animals, mekudashin, they all end up being consecrated. They all end up being designated to the beta HaMikdash. The first is hektash because it was designated like it was a 10th which was a mistake. But once you've designated something hectate, we never take that label away. The second really is the 10th one, so there you go. And then the third one, which was the 11th one, was also by mistake designated as a 10th. So even though these are errors, we still say that w- more than one animal can can in fact be made hectic um, as if it were all, as if they were all the 10th animal. And what that means then is, um, that they are fundamentally being designated as if they were right as if it, or rather I mean, let me say it carefully they're they're being designated at the same time in a way that wouldn't have worked because you would have clarity over which one was a tenth but because of this potential mistake or as i said they they when they both come out of the pen together then you end up with a lack of clarity and then you end up um you know, again, following through on this position of Rav. Um, let me just make sure that there was no other critical example here. I think that is it. The reason I wanted to speak specifically about the Zer HaRZem is that when we think about how halacha is done and how, how we come to apply halacha to different cases, these are critical understandings of literally how things happen. Zer means things take place in sequence. Right? Bivatakhat, things take place simultaneously. And the as I say, when the principle of ze ze doesn't work if it couldn't be it it won't work simultaneously. If it couldn't work ze ze, I like the example of the master for the produce in that it shows you, right, that it sounds like you could do it at the same time. Just take two tenths. That's generous. What's the problem? And the answer is, but if you were to separate that out and try one after another, it would not work. Whereas with the animals, we see the opposite. We see, well, it's not exactly simultaneous, but we understand where this this potential for error and the potential for a backup animal gives you a little bit more leeway, but the principle itself still applies in terms of sequential versus simultaneous. Uh, you did a good job with that.
1: <laughs> I hope everyone was able to follow this episode. <laughs> there was a lot of jumping around here. Um, But again, I think whereas last staff was a little bit more philosophical. uh, This one, I think, got a little bit more into the nitty gritty of, you know, some of the uh, ways to think about era. Well, that's our doc discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robinette Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this jumping around death. And if this presentation didn't work, totally let us know in the Talking the Facebook page. Um, <laughs> and uh, this, you, you will all be getting this after Yom Kippur. So we hope everybody had a call and wishing all of us a meaningful, safe, healthy year uh, with lots more learning together. I
0: mean-